Hi, welcome to Love Faith Talkers. We are here to talk about the topics that matter to real life Christians just like you. Topics like anxiety, fitness, loneliness in church, Christians in the workplace, depression, and even food. We interview psychologists, preachers, businessmen, and businesswomen, and people just like you. We're here to help you find the hope, inspiration, and courage you need to live your life the way God intends. As an empowered, thriving Christian. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Love, Fate Tacos. We appreciate your patience as last week, I was sick as a dog. Like, I don't know what's been happening around here. I don't usually get sick, but I've been sick a lot lately. And so that's the reason why we were not on the air last week, because I got sick on Sunday and wasn't really better until Wednesday afternoon. It was pretty, uh, it's pretty rough. Um, I'm not going to go into it because I don't want to traumatize you all (laughs) on your early commute. But uh, the change of topic we promised is coming next week. Um, We actually wrote that episode and it's all set to go. But what we realize is that the topic of assurance of salvation is even deeper and more complicated than what we touched on last week. Uh, And just yesterday, Nikki, you and I, we had a two-hour discussion on the topic, right? Yes. Yeah, so we're going to dive in one more time, but specifically focusing on this issue of assurance. Uh, and, And what we've learned is that assurance falls into three different arenas. First is doctrinal, doctrinal accuracy. I can't talk. Um, I couldn't talk this morning in teen class either. So teens, if you're listening, see, it's still going on. I don't know what's happening. Uh, (laughs) Doctrinal accuracy, dealing with sin and anxiety. Those are three different levels on which we need to approach assurance. And I used to just think, well, assurance was assurance. That was all it was, but it's not. There all three of those levels are different levels on which you, you might need to deal with it. And we did talk about the first one, which being doctrinal accuracy, but not as much the second two probably as we should have or could have. So we're going to go ahead and dive into those two, which are dealing with sin and anxiety. And we're going to start, first of all, with uh, dealing with sin. I mean, Nikki, what would you say about how common this is? Is it normal? Is it weird? (laughs) I think that it's pretty normal. Um, And a lot of people do tend to doubt their salvation due to sinning often. Um, Well, I'm... Try not to go ahead of myself here. <laughs> oh, always the um, battle. Always yeah. The battle. So certain phrases like how can someone be saved and sin as often as I do? Or even if you constantly struggle with sin, maybe you aren't saved. I think that sometimes those can contribute to um, that situation. Yeah, I think so too. And I mean, those voices, they come to us all the time, unfortunately, especially if it's an area that is used to beat you down. And it should be pointed out that even though we're not really focusing on the anxiety portion of this yet, that anxiety can use sin as a perseverative point in this. For me personally, anxiety has not been the issue when I would doubt my salvation, but it was sin, uh, especially all through college. Cause I went to a college where man, like all the time, it was just hammer on sin, hammer on sin, hammer on sin. And don't get me wrong. Sin's bad. In fact, sin's horrible. Uh, the, the consequences of sin are terrible. What it does in our lives are terrible. It brings every ounce of pain and suffering that we deal with in our lives, even if it's not directly from the sin that you committed yesterday. Sin as a whole does that. So it's a horrible thing. And getting rid of sin is important. And, and God did say, be holy as I am holy. And I guess really right there is a good place to point out something for Christians. Sinless perfection is impossible, practically. 
it is only possible positionally. Now you may be going, what are you talking? What do you mean sinless perfection? The idea that you as a Christian can be totally 100% without sin. You know, I'm walking clean, as we went had one preacher very proudly tell us. Um, the Bible, where people get this confused, is from First John chapter three verses eight and nine, where it says, "He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning." For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. And they say, see, a person who is truly saved never, never sins. Well, there's a few really practical, really quick up problems with that. I mean, even on the, on the surface of it. This book of the Bible was written to Christians, and that's really, really important when you consider that this is the same book of the Bible that just back in chapter 1, verse 9 says... If we, that's Christians, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If sinless perfection were possible, how would we have any sins to confess, right? Right. So this is not a salvation verse, but is actually a book written to saved people. And it's talking about us as Christians confessing our sins, not people who are not saved confessing their sins. Right. And I mean positionally, this is what it's talking about. God can't see our sins because they're covered by the blood of Christ. So that whenever we do sin, it's already been paid for by Calvary. The Bible talks about that in Hebrews chapter 10, especially getting into verses 12 through 14. Very powerful verses about eternal security. If you ever struggle with that, which is, can I lose my salvation, which is a whole other ball game. We could talk about that sometime. But the key in this passage, just to let you know, in the first John chapter three is back in verse six, when it says, whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Abiding really is the key to living a life that is for the most part free of sin. And again, you're going to sin at some point, but it is that abiding that really is the factor for um, liberty over sin. It's not saying that if you ever sin, you, you're not saved. You weren't really born of God. It is abiding that liberates you from sin. And all you have to do to start sinning again is to stop abiding. So I just that needs to be out of your head that as a Christian, there's somehow these super Christians who walk around with a cape on who never sin. Well, Christians in general are still sinners, right? So yeah. we are all still going to sin. <laughs> yeah, what's that song? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. <laughs> yeah, I'm still a sinner who just happens to be saved by grace. And by the way, let's just throw this out there. The Apostle Paul struggled with sin. Did you know that? An apostle. Yeah, you know, one of the people that were directly chosen by Jesus Christ. He said in Romans chapter 7, whenever he was talking about the good that I would do, that I do not, and that which I would not, that I do. He was basically saying, I want to do good, and then I don't do good things. And I don't want to sin. And you know what I end up doing? I end up sinning. And this is very interesting. What he said in verse 21 through 24 of that passage, he says, I find then a law. is a law. This is an absolute. He said that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Then he goes on to say, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Look, if the Apostle Paul struggled with sin and he was still saved, just because you're struggling with sin, it doesn't mean that you're not saved. 
In fact, it might mean exactly the opposite, right? <clears throat> yes. The struggle is actually a huge indicator that you are saved. And the concern is if there is no struggle and sin seems to always come unanswered by the voice of the Holy Spirit. So if there is never an urge to do the right thing, that's when you should be concerned and give careful examination to whether or not you're saved. Right. And that's why, you know, we, we mentioned that abiding is what's the key to overcoming sin, not just being saved. And and uh, I think you were going to mention something, too, that I, I, I kept forgetting and you mentioned it to bring it in about. Um, oh, I know what it was. Sorry. You need to go to John 15 if you want to learn more about abiding. That's what I was going to say. Sorry. See, I got confused Wait, and got what? ahead of myself, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then First Timothy 4, 1 through 2 does talk about a conscious conscience see now you're rubbing off i'm sorry a conscience that is seared with a hot iron and this is when the holy spirit stops convicting you yeah calling you um and that is also in regards to christians though correct yes correct that is in regards to christians not unsaved people no because it actually says in the past in the passage some will depart from the faith like they are saved and they're going to leave it they're going to apostatize so the whole point of dealing with sin is if, if you're like, just to sum up this section, just because you have sin in your life does not mean that you aren't saved. Every human being who is a Christian struggles with sin. The struggle, the fact that you have a struggle, that there is a good pushing back against the evil is an indicator that you probably are saved. It's when there is no pushback, there is no spiritual calling. That is when you, you should be really concerned. Yeah, and I was just going to add to you that the struggle does not necessarily come from you as a human, right? Because the mm. Bible tells us that in us dwells no good thing. So that should also be an indicator. And that's something that's really helped me as well. It's that if I'm, you know, torn between something I should do, something I shouldn't do, and one is more the right thing or the good thing, um, and the other is not, and that is sin then it's probably more of an indicator of the Holy Spirit versus me just being a good person. Like, oh, I want to do the right thing. Why do I want to do the right thing? That's the Holy Spirit in me because our flesh is not going to naturally want to do the right thing. Right. And I think it's important to point out that there's a huge difference between regretting not doing the right thing and in the moment of choice having a struggle over it. Because how many times have we seen an abusive person who goes in and they hit someone like maybe mm. even a drunk person and then later when they're sitting there looking at the aftermath they regret that they didn't choose the right thing but in that moment no compul no compulsion whatsoever no urge to do the right thing that's when you need to look at at your situation and go hey did i get saved because as a christian the holy spirit lives within you and the holy spirit is going to struggle for right just like the flesh struggles for wrong no struggle that's your concern. But again, and that, that's where it hammered for me personally, that was my big issue. And it was really hit me heavy, heavily in Bible college. And that's when finally I just read the book of Romans and reading what the Bible said in Romans, specifically, by the way, chapter six really helped liberate me on this topic to understand, dude, I'm dead to sin. That doesn't mean dead, that sin can't like affect me now, but it has no power, no real power over me other than this, the power I give it by yielding to it. So that's that's dealing with sin. That's the first topic. So, um, again, we've already talked about the doctrinal issues, like to understand what salvation is, and then dealing with sin. And then that takes us into anxiety. Because a person who you've helped 
you, you sat there and you said, okay, doctrinally, you understand what salvation is. Check. We've talked about sin and okay, check. We, we've, we've dealt with that. Then you've got to help them on one more level and that's the anxiety level. And it's important to understand that people with anxiety, they can doctrinally be right on the money. And they might even deal with concerns over sin or maybe they don't. For them, it isn't an issue of um, sin or about the Bible. It's an issue of doubt. Sometimes it's coupled with compulsory behavior. And what I mean by compulsory behavior is you got to keep praying to get saved. You got to keep praying to get saved. To quote Robin Williams, let us repray. Uh, constantly praying and praying. It's almost compulsive. You got to do it. Um, well, I, you know, and seriously, when we were talking in the car yesterday, <laughs> Nikki was telling me about this really interesting thing that she read about compulsion. So I'm going to let her kind of talk yeah. about it. Yeah. So I, um, I actually think I saw this on Facebook and I'm in a lot of psychology groups, ABA groups, um, ABA is applied behavior analysis and that's what I do for a living, but that's a total separate topic. But yeah, so this was something I actually read from one of those groups, um, that I thought was really interesting. And then that kind of triggered, um, or I guess like led me to my discovery about this. And then we ended up talking about it for about an hour. So it's very interesting. Um, but basically somebody had given a talk on rituals and compulsive behaviors. And typically when we hear that, we think of OCD, um, obsessive compul compulsive disorder. Um, and this person had said that rituals are, they tend to be positively reinforcing. So that means that the person who's engaging in that ritual tends to get something from it in a good way. Like they feel good about it when they do it, but that, um, compulsive behaviors tend to be negatively, negatively. Wow. Rubbing off of me. I'm so, I'm so sorry. <laughs> negatively reinforcing. And that means that they tend to experience some sort of decrease in the bad feelings once that um, compulsion, compulsive behavior is completed. And so I thought that was interesting just looking back to my experience with um, specifically salvation, assurance of salvation, where it almost is more of like a compulsion, compul oh my goodness. <laughs> Maybe we should just do this next week. I don't know. This is bad. <laughs> a compulsive behavior um, because it is like, oh, I feel this way, like I have these, you know, negative feelings, um, or I feel uncomfortable or whatever it is. And then it's like, oh, I should just pray again. And usually it's not suggestive for me anyway. It's like, pray, you need to pray. Like it's very like pushy and compulsions tend to be more like that, where it's like, you have to do it in order to feel better. So I thought that was very interesting. Well, and as you said, it's not so much that you just did it to feel better. When you did it, it's not that you didn't feel better. Oh, no, no. It helped me not feel bad. Not feel bad is more. Right. So if I'm understanding what you're saying, you're telling me that someone who is dealing with a compulsive disorder doesn't feel better when they do the compulsory uh, action. They just don't feel as bad. It's like an escape behavior. It's sort almost of. like, oh, I escaped that feeling or something like that. So what that reminds me of personally is that when my dad, when we were growing up, and I remember this one time, this one specifically, I grew, uh, I grew up in Dublin before Fresno, not Ireland, California, Dublin, California, in the <laughs> East Bay uh, of California. Go A's, please. 
um, get, owner spend some money on the team, just resign some players. Okay, <laughs> sorry, caveat over. Um, but anyway, I still remember this one time. My dad walked out of the house, locked the door. He juggled the door handle, took two steps, walked back, rechecked it. Two steps, walked back, rechecked it, came to the car, opened the door, closed it, went back and rechecked the knob. And he just like, it was locked the first three times, but it wasn't making him feel any better to check the knob and jiggle it and feel that it was locked. It just was trying to make him feel less bad. And I don't think he ever felt good about it. I mean, I, am I understanding that's, that would be a good example of what we're talking about kind of? <laughs> I mean, based on what you read, I know you're not yeah, an expert in so. compulsion. I mean, yeah, I'm definitely, that's not my area of expertise, but. Right. So, yeah. but what I'm saying is in a spiritual sense, then like, if you feel like, man, I just, I need to pray, I need to pray. And then you, you pray for salvation and you're not, you don't feel one ounce more assured that you were actually more saved than you were three minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. I just want to make sure I was understanding uh, but somehow, that. like, those negative feelings or thoughts are gone after doing it, you mm. know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, in a sense, it is like an escape right? from that. Yeah, I, I find that very interesting and fascinating. And this is something that we are going to be doing more But you would have to research. research. Yeah, exactly. This is literally something I just found out yesterday. So, I was very fascinated by it. Oh, yeah, seriously. And by the way, we are going to be posting an episode at some point to help you all learn how to do research. But uh, and yes, it's more simple or it's more complicated than you might think it is. It's not as simple as looking for sources. It's if you want good research, it takes time and effort to to do. Uh, So anyway, I interrupted. Yeah. So all that to say that it's important for us to understand that when we are helping people who are Christians um, deal with assurance of salvation that we need to work in the order of dealing with the doctrinal aspect and then discussing the sin issue and then helping on a supportive level with anxiety if they're if the other two were not the issue right yeah yeah and i mean i would guess that it's possible to have a combination yeah for sure of those issues as well um and well and like you said I do think that the devil can use any, honestly, any of these to kind of create that cycle, you know? Right. I just think that the doctrinal issue is probably the easiest to clear up because we got the Bible. Right. So we can just look at it. And I think the sin one can be kind of easy. It just depends because I really feel like with with the Bible one, or, or not the Bible, with, with the sin one, I think the issue is that we hear a lot of things from... Uh, different sources. Maybe we read a book or we hear preachers. Like I listen to so much preaching in a week. Like I listen to podcasts and things like that. I go to church, obviously. Um, you preach to me. I mean, yes, I do. <laughs> you tell me Every what to day. do. I mean, <laughs> um, but seriously, I hear a lot of, uh, I hear a lot of preaching and there's just so many voices that you hear out there. And whenever you've constantly got voices telling you, Hey, you know, uh, the sin in your life, the sin in your life, the sin in your life. And then you, you look at the sin in your life. And the thing is you tend to magnify what you focus on. Mm-hmm. So if all you're seeing is the sin, then that's all you're seeing. So, I mean, there's that. And then just really, I mean, the anxiety can attack you no matter what, what phase you're in. What I think is interesting, um, Nikki, and maybe you can speak more to this, especially as a person who became aware very abruptly a few years ago about the presence of anxiety in your life. What's it like 
for us, and I can talk about this too, but you had the more dramatic switch, I guess. What is it like for a person who does not directly realize that they're dealing with anxiety versus a person who does? Like you hear people who are saying things and they're dealing with anxiety, but since you have no experience in it, it's hard to recognize, right? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I mean, I think I was dealing with it long before I actually knew I was dealing with it, but I, when I didn't know that I was dealing with it, I would hear other people talk about it and think, oh, wow, that must be awful. I feel bad for them. Like I had a lot of sympathy toward them, but it's hard to connect on that level when you haven't personally experienced it. Um, just because people who deal with anxiety, it's not that they want to deal with it or that they haven't tried to work through it or they haven't prayed, you know, like it's none of those things that literally just, it kind of is what it is. And so, um, if you haven't experienced it, I think it's harder to relate to people who have. And so your whole approach is going to be vastly different than somebody who has experience with anxiety or has a close, you know, family member who deals with it because you're going to have more insight on what that looks like and how to approach it. Right. And I was just thinking of the one guy um, when we were at one of our previous churches who helped us and he told us that, uh, and this guy was like former law enforcement. Actually at the time he was law enforcement. It's a former law enforcement at all at the time. And he, you know, he said, you know, Hey, before I would see people who were dealing with anxiety and I would just kind of scoff at him and be like, dude, adapt and overcome. Like, Oh, what's wrong with you? Just like get over it. And then once he experienced it, it was like, oh, it's not just adapt and overcome anymore. Like what what I what I took from that as a person who at the time did not realize I dealt with anxiety at all. And again, nothing compared to what other people do. My anxieties I feel are pretty light. What I came to realize about anxiety and helping other people who have it is that it's my job if God brings them into my life to learn about those people and how to help those people and how things that I do can affect them negatively without realizing that I'm doing it. Cause I think that's really easy to do. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and just come across as insensitive and, and by the way, just for pastors and preachers as a man who myself am a, am, am a preacher myself. I just think we need to be careful that we don't inadvertently hurt these people or exacerbate their condition. I mean, really think about this. The, the percentages of Americans who are diagnosed with anxiety, it's going through the roof. There's a ton of them. And I don't necessarily know that it's because there's more anxiety or because we're more aware of it. I tend to think there actually is more of it. I think it's a combination, right? right? Because of everything that's happened in the world. And then on top of that, the awareness, which is great that there's more awareness now. Right. But at the same time, it's like if, if, if we used to live in San Diego and I used to tell my class, look, we live in a town where God has placed us that has a lot of military people. So it behooves us that we need to figure out how we reach the military people because God put us in an area with a lot of military. And if I were in a ministry where there were a lot of people who lived near my church or who were brought into my sphere of influence who dealt with alcohol or drugs, then I think it would probably be wise for me to focus my attention on how to help those people and not just go on preaching the Bible and teaching like they don't have needs that are very specific. And 
we need to realize that as people who are living in a society where this has become a bigger and bigger issue, we need to learn how to give the gospel without um, evoking those responses the best that we can. We need to learn how to minister to those people, how we say things in such a way that makes church someplace we want to be. Because what will inadvertently happen, I think, is that church becomes someplace that is aversive to someone like that. If we come in and we just go on down the road, not learning about it, and we don't even realize the damage that we're doing to them when we do it. Uh, I don't want church to become aversive to them. I assume that, you know, you wouldn't either for those of you who are in that position. On the other hand, if we go into a church where the pastor is educated or has educated himself on mental health and he doesn't have to be like a mental health expert, expert, but he maybe has personal experience or maybe has done his own research and he is able to uh, <clears throat> apply that in combination with scripture, like as he's teaching and preaching, I think that can really help people and that there can be healing, right? Mm -hmm. And it can be a place of restoration. Right. And I, I, the main thing that I'm getting at here is we can't just pretend like this isn't happening. It's kind of like the whole LGBTQ plus situation, how that is becoming more to the forefront. We are going to need to theologically deal with those things. And just like that and figuring out how to minister to those people and how to reach them with the gospel, we need to figure out how we help people who are dealing with anxiety. It's a huge thing that is in our society. So educate yourself. Go out there and look at it and take another look at the Bible. You need to realize that as you look at the scripture, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. Anxiety isn't new. There were people in the Bible that doubtless dealt with anxiety. I mean, seriously, think about the definition of anxiety is fear over something that is not currently actually happening. That's what anxiety really is. And so think about how many people in the Bible move forward doing God's will, doing the right thing, and they didn't have peace. That's the reason why when people talk about finding God's will, I tell them, don't look for peace. Peace can be an indicator, but it is not the indicator. And there are plenty of people who did God's will who didn't have peace. Think of Gideon. Gideon was so wigged out about it, he repeatedly asked God for signs, and I don't know if he ever got over it. Um, think about the situation with Jesus in the garden. If Jesus was just filled with perfect peace, then why was he begging the disciples to pray with him? Why was he begging the Father to remove this cup from him if he just had perfect peace? I don't think he did. I think that God can give you perfect peace, but it's not a guarantee. So we need to basically learn that so that we can figure out how to help people and not just one group, but everybody. That's kind of what I'm getting at uh, in that topic. Um, what about as lay Christians, though? What can we do as just people in our church? I don't know. What, what do you think, Nikki? How can we how can we help people? Maybe like what are signs we should look for maybe on Facebook or in the way that people interact with people? Any thoughts on that? For anxiety, you mean? Yeah, like like when we're at church and maybe maybe <clears throat> we're like, oh, that maybe that person has anxiety. What kind of things do you think we should look out for? Um, I think like, what do you call it? Um isolation like keeping to themselves it's not isolation right yeah isolation kind of isolation um like not maybe like maybe if they start missing services when they used to be there more often 
Um, because that could just be them dealing with anxiety or, you know, other church type issues. Yeah. And I mean, obviously we know that we can always refer them to the pastor, but uh, I just wanted to kind of see if you had anything that you wanted to throw in there in, in full. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that not everybody who has anxiety wants to talk about it or socialize. Um, and actually, I mean, some people have social anxiety, right? Like that's a whole nother thing. Um, so I just think it's important for us to be mindful that there are people who struggle with that and just to be sympathetic toward them, you know, like you really don't know what people are going through until they tell you. And even then, if you haven't experienced it, it's so hard to understand what living with anxiety is, you know, or what it looks like. Yeah. And you said something right there that just kind of stuck out in my mind that we need to really focus on people as an individual. Yeah. Not as a group, because I think it's too easy to look at a church congregation and preach to the people or minister to the people or help the people and realize that while we do have commonality of needs, everything is individualized. You know, um, I don't keep this a secret because frankly, I don't see why I should. I'm a New England Patriots fan, y'all. And uh, for the last 20 years, the Patriots were extremely dominant. And one of the things that they always talked about was how the Patriots were a game plan team, meaning that they would look at what the other opponents did and they would tailor the way they played their game to what the other team did. Whereas other teams, the Steelers, for example, were famous for just, they played their game. This is the way they ran defense. This is the way they ran offense. And they would just do their thing. And then they would come to play the Patriots. And no matter how good the Steelers were, it was a real fight. But more often than not, the Patriots would tend to prevail. Why? Because they were tailoring the way that they played the game based on the people on the other side of the ball. And the same thing is true for us. We need to look at the people in our lives who, whether we're just lay people in the church and we're sitting next to them in the pew and we notice there's an issue, whether we're uh, just, whether we're leaders in the church or we're pastors or something like that, we need to look at people and find out how they accept ministering one by one. And if it comes down to this issue of assurance of salvation, we can't just assume that it's a doctrinal issue or it's a sin issue. It could be those two things and or it could be anxiety. So let's really take the time to review that and learn that and hopefully help people. Um, anything else that you can think of to to get this? I know this is a little bit shorter of an episode for us because we just, again, it was kind of like a tack on that we didn't talk about last time when we felt like we needed to. So a little bit shorter. We do want to let you know that coming up soon, we're going to be talking about some practical topics like how to act when a service professional comes to your home. Uh, we have an upcoming interview with a couple who will be telling their story about church hurt and the healing process. Uh, we will have another Ask the Pest Tech soon. And we will be discussing some autism-related topics, such as how do you know when it's time to get your child evaluated? Uh, these are all things that we've got coming up here in the near future, and we're really excited to bring them to you. Thank you so much for hanging out with us, especially since there's been so much inconsistency due to sickness. Uh, my sickness, because it's not Nikki's sickness. For once. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, but if you ever have any questions, you want to contact us, you have any concerns, uh, or suggestions, email us at lovefaithtacos at gmail.com. That's lovefaithtacos at gmail.com. Until next time, we'll see you on the other side. Thank you for joining us on Love Faith Tacos. We hope this has been a blessing to you. If it was, we ask that you do three things. 
Number one, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Number two, please leave us a five-star rating and write a review if you can. And number three, please tell a friend because hope is just too important not to share.